Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, August 18th. I'm Leslie Palmer. And I'm Teresa Watson. We're so happy to have you with us tonight. In our top story, we'll report on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision on the abortion drug mifepristone. Julie Blake, Senior Counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom, will join us to talk about the case and what comes next. In Abortion in the News, I'll tell you about a lawsuit that could bankrupt Planned Parenthood in Texas and report on Operation Rescue's findings that abortions are being performed illegally at the Nebraska clinic of the late Leroy Carhart. In political news in a nutshell, I'll have the latest on Donald Trump's refusal to sign the Republican National Convention's loyalty pledge. And I'll tell you about Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's musings on her next career move. We'll close tonight with some good news from another federal appeals court, which found that the District of Columbia was selectively enforcing its anti-graffiti policy by arresting pro-lifers but letting Black Lives Matter activists cause all the mayhem they wanted. Christy Hamrick from Students for Life of America will join us. The Federal Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on Wednesday ordered an end to mail-order abortion and reinstated safeguards on the dangerous chemical abortion drug mifepristone. But while the court condemned the improper FDA approval process for the drug in 2000, it did not revoke that approval. The drug will remain available for the time being after the U.S. Supreme Court said in April that it must stay on the market until the appeals process is concluded. Immediately after the ruling was made public, the Biden administration said it would ask the high court to review the case. In its opinion in the case, known as the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the court found that when the FDA loosened several safety restrictions on the deadly drug all at once, the agency failed to address several important concerns about whether the drug would be safe for the women who use it. As Life News has reported, in 2016, the FDA allowed the drug to be used to abort babies up to 10 weeks instead of seven, removed two of three required office visits, and allowed non-doctors to prescribe the two-drug regimen, and eliminated the requirement that providers report non-fatal adverse events to the FDA. This week's ruling upholds the district court's decision to reinstate the original safeguards, including the seven weeks gestational limitation, necessary office visits, non-fatal adverse event reporting, and the requirement that only physicians may dispense the drug. The plaintiffs in the case were represented by the Pro-Life Alliance Defending Freedom, and we have with us tonight Julie Blake, senior counsel at ADF, to discuss the ruling. Welcome, Julie, and congratulations. Thank you. Well, Julie, what's the feeling at ADF about the Fifth Circuit ruling? Well, the FDA has a responsibility to protect the health, the safety, and the welfare of all Americans, but it has failed that responsibility when it comes to chemical abortion drugs. These drugs are dangerous, and they should never have been approved in the first place, let alone without safeguards on their use. And so the Fifth Circuit's decision to order the FDA to reimpose basic common sense safeguards is a win for the health and safety of women and girls across America. So now tell us what happens next. Well, nothing changes on the ground until the U.S. Supreme Court has a chance to review the case. And the Biden administration announced immediately that they intend to go to the U.S. Supreme Court and appeal the decision. And here's what the Supreme Court should do. It should look at this and realize that the FDA has been completely politicized on this issue and that it's time for the FDA to put politics aside, follow the law, 
and the science and start protecting women and girls. What was it unusual for the Supreme Court to stay the ruling even before there was one? It was, and that was at the request of the Biden administration after the uh, original trial court in the case said that the FDA had not been protecting women and girls from the beginning, from the start of the approval process through all of the removals of safeguards. And the Biden administration immediately went on appeal into the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which issued a stay. But we're hopeful that once this U.S. Supreme Court looks at the decisions of the lower courts, which have all agreed that the FDA has not protected women's health and safety, that the U.S. Supreme Court will agree that the FDA has failed its responsibility, too. Worst case scenario, if the Supreme Court ultimately leaves mifepristone on the market, is there any other direction to attack it from? Well, this case gives a few different angles on it. And um, what the Supreme Court might do is might do just the same thing that the appeals court did, which is leave the drug on the market, unfortunately, but at least require these safeguards in it, require women to see a doctor before getting a chemical abortion, requiring them to have office visits with in-person dispensing to make sure a provider's there in case of emergencies, uh, require evidence to be collected of whether these drugs have complications, and of course, prohibit um, telemedicine, mail order abortions, where women just ha having a, an abortion and, and labor and delivery all on their own at their home with, with no one there to care for them. Um, and then of course, having the gestational limits earlier because the later you can take these drugs in pregnancy, the more dangerous it is. So we're hopeful that the Supreme Court at a minimum will realize that all of these things that the court just ordered are really important for women and girls. Well, Julie, congratulations on a job well done and, and thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope you'll come back as the case progresses. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Good night. Good night. The Pentagon has said it will not change its illegal policy of providing paid time off and travel expenses for women in the military who want to abort their children. The decision continues a standoff between the Department of Defense and Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, who has blocked the promotions of 300 senior military personnel until the policy is rescinded. The Senate could advance the promotions one by one, but the Democrat-led body seems reluctant to do that, preferring to blame Tuberville for the delays rather than the illegal abortion policy. Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema, a Democrat turned independent, has volunteered to try to find a solution. A Nebraska judge last week rejected an effort to block a law that protects babies from abortion at 12 weeks and prohibits gender mutilating surgery for people under 19. Lancaster County District Court Judge Lori Merritt sided with the state and allowed a law approved by the Nebraska legislature earlier this year to remain in effect. The American Civil Liberties Union brought the case on behalf of Planned Parenthood and is expected to appeal. Also in Nebraska, Operation Rescue has discovered that abortions are being performed illegally at Leroy Carhart's abortion mill in Bellevue, even though Carhart himself is dead. The new medical director, Ty Tyrone Malloy, is not registered in Nebraska, and the clinic's license is no longer active. Malloy has a sordid history, including a 2014 conviction on two counts of defrauding the Georgia Medicaid program by illegally billing more than $386,000. He was sentenced to four years in prison, but served less than two and also six years of probation. He also was responsible for the 2008 death of a 23-year-old woman after a botched abortion at 25 weeks. He lacerated her cervix and stitched it up, not realizing he had also perforated her uterus. After uncontrolled bleeding and multiple cardiac arrests, the woman was pronounced dead at an Atlanta hospital. Texas has asked a federal judge to fine Planned Parenthood more than $1 billion for filing thousands of fraudulent Medicaid claims over multiple years. Allegations the same Planned Parenthood affiliate has settled in the past. 
With interest, fines, and penalties, Planned Parenthood has warned the total fine could be a whopping $1.8 billion, inflicting devastating consequences for the abortion chain and potentially causing it to close down its operations in the Lone Star State. In 2015, Texas began a process to defund Planned Parenthood by decertifying it as a Medicaid provider. In December 2016, the Texas Health and Human Services Commission notified Planned Parenthood affiliates that they would no longer be eligible to, to receive state Medicaid payments. The abortion giant sued, of course, but in December 2020, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of Texas. By that time, Planned Parenthood had received $10 million in Medicaid payments. Now Texas wants that money back, plus interest and penalties. Abortion is all but illegal in Texas, but to make up for its lost revenue, Planned Parenthood is now performing so-called gender-affirming care. An Australian woman who would rather be a man was undergoing a hysterectomy in 2021 without realizing she was four months pregnant. 38-year-old Jessie Polner is married and the mother of six other children. Her gender confusion led to the death of her seventh, and the story was just revealed this week. Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, is a biological man who says he is a woman. Recently, he toured a gender-affirming business in Alaska and came away glowing about the facility, including its plan to do away with the term mother in favor of the bizarre and insulting phrase, egg producers. And finally, a fire destroyed a Planned Parenthood abortion business located in El Centro, California, about halfway between Los Angeles and the Arizona border, and near the large Mexican city of Mexicali. The fire apparently started at a storage yard behind a Salvation Army facility next to Planned Parenthood. Many women from Arizona have been coming to abort their babies beyond the 15-week mark at the, at the center. And that's Abortion in the News. Health regulators on Monday ordered an Orlando abortion business to pay a $193,000 fine for violating a law that requires women to wait 24 hours before having abortions, nearly three times the fine recommended by an administrative law judge. The State Agency for Healthcare Administration issued a final order requiring the Center of Orlando for Women to pay a $1,000 fine for each of 193 violations shortly after the law took effect in April 2022. Monday's final order, signed by Agency for Healthcare Administration Secretary Jason Weida, said the record is devoid of any reasons why the clinic could not comply with the law prior to May 9, 2022, which was the date it first began complying with it. The case was one of a series of similar efforts by the Agency for Healthcare Administration to fine clinics for not complying with the waiting period law in the weeks after it took effect. The Florida legislature passed the waiting period requirement in 2015, but the law spurred a lengthy court fight and did not take effect until April 25, 2022, when Leon County Circuit Judge Angela Dempsey entered a final judgment upholding it. The law requires women to receive information from doctors about abortions and then wait at least 24 hours before having the procedure. Janet Marana, Executive Director of Priests for Life, had this to say about the fines. An Orlando abortion clinic could be going out of business because of a major proposed fine. Yeah, just last week, a state agency filed a complaint against the Center of Orlando for Women. West Shoes Marlene Martinez tells us why and what that could mean for abortions here in Central Florida. Wow, it's about time. It's really about time. This law has been on the books here in Florida for years, several years, that the abortion clinics, you know, they're supposed to have a waiting period. You know, a woman comes into the clinic today, they're not supposed to abort her baby today. They're supposed to wait till tomorrow to have her come back. 
193 cases they found. That's why they're getting fined. $193,000. Hallelujah. Finally. Oh, but now we have to wait for them to pay. Boo-hoo-hoo. -hoo. Let me tell you, abortion clinics in Florida and all over the country do not pay attention to the law. Thank you, Florida, but let's keep it going. The Center of Orlando for Women was formerly owned by James Pendergraft, one of the most notorious abortionists in the country. In June 2013, police raided the center and seized his abortion equipment as partial payment for a $37 million judgment against him, stemming from injuries to a baby who survived abortion. Also that year, he was fined $122,000 for botching an abortion in which he ruptured a mother's uterus and shoved the body of her 19-week unborn baby into her abdominal cavity. Pendergraft's license was suspended a total of five times by 2013, once for performing an illegal third trimester abortion. In 2015, Pendergraft was arrested in South Carolina when sheriff's deputies conducting a routine traffic stop found illegal drugs and bloody abortion instruments in his trunk. He was convicted of 10 drug offenses and sentenced to five years probation. In 2017, the licenses were revoked at four of his abortion businesses, so he transferred ownership to his wife, which allowed the, the abortuaries to be relicensed. The following year, his Florida medical license was permanently revoked, but an internet search of his name reveals that he might still be performing abortions in Tampa, Florida. Donald Trump's refusal to sign the Republican National Committee's loyalty pledge is putting the organization in a bind as next week's GOP primary debate approaches. Trump said he wouldn't sign the pledge last week and is expected to announce in the coming days whether or not he will attend the event. RNC Chairwoman Rona McDaniel must now navigate the thorny situation of appeasing Trump, both a ratings draw and the clear frontrunner in the primary, while maintaining her control as head of the party. The first debate hasn't even taken place, but the qualifying period for the second has already begun. The two frontrunners, former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, have both earned spots on stage. Four other candidates also met the requirements for the second debate laid out by the Republican National Committee according to Politico's tracking. Businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Ron DeSantis leads Donald Trump with a better than six to one advantage in campaign donations from lawyers who appear eager to deny the former president a third Republican nomination, Bloomberg reports. DeSantis ranked in more than raked in more than one point three million dollars in individual lawyer contributions through the end of June, compared with just under two hundred thousand for Trump, according to federal campaign filings. DeSantis' roots include a Harvard Law School education and time as U.S. Navy lawyer, whereas Trump is known for publicly criticizing attorneys, ignoring their advice, not paying their bills, and suing them. Mike Pence said Wednesday that the Georgia election was not stolen in 2020, leaning into his role on January 6, days after Donald Trump's indictment for his attempts to overturn the election results in the state political reports. Pence said the Georgia election was not stolen and I had no right to overturn the election on January 6th. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican from Georgia, won't rule out challenging Governor Brian Kemp in the GOP primary for the U.S. Senate seat in 2026, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports. Greene said, I haven't made up my mind whether I will do that or not. 
I have a lot of things to think about. Am I going to be a part of President Trump's cabinet if he wins? Is it possible that I'll be VP? Green called serving as Trump's running mate an honor and something she would consider very, very heavily. Kemp has served two terms as governor and is unable to run again because of the state's term limits. The anti-abortion organization Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America reinforced its call for Republican candidates to support a federal 15-week abortion ban, saying it may be forced to withhold its influential endorsement from candidates who decline. Ahead of the first Republican presidential primary debate, the group, recovering from a ballot measure defeat in Ohio, it blames on weak Republicans and grassroots apprehension, is doubling down on its efforts to push Republicans to endorse a national law. It's possible that we would endorse a candidate, but it's also possible that we won't, and we have a very bright line that hasn't changed, and you must communicate your federal minimum standards, SBA President Marjorie Dannenfelser said on a press call, adding that a candidate would need to detail how they would combat the extremes of California, Illinois, and New York, which support abortion up to the end a national political movement that could offer an independent presidential ticket in 2024 as an alternative to major party nominees, said Monday it has now won ballot access in 10 states after North Carolina election officials formally granted official status to a no-labels affiliate. The State Board of Elections voted 4-1 to one on Sunday to recognize the no-labels party as an official North Carolina party following a successful petition effort. It joins four other recognized parties with which voters can now choose to be registered and field candidates. The new North Carolina party is linked to a national no-labels effort that lists a wide array of mostly centrist political leaders backing it. They include ex-North Carolina GOP Governor Pat McCrory, U.S. Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, and former Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman, a former Democrat who became an independent. No Labels is poised to offer an independent ticket for president and vice president if Democrats and Republicans select unreasonable, divisive presidential nominees. North Carolina, usually considered a battleground state, has 16 electoral votes at stake. The other states are Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Florida, Nevada, Oregon, South Dakota, and Utah. Reaching 10 states is a historic victory for Americans who have said loud and clear they want more choices at the ballot box. The spirit of democracy is winning in America today, civil rights leader Benjamin Chavez, a North Carolina native and national co-chair of No Labels, said in a news release Monday. And that's political news in a nutshell. There was more good news this week from the federal court system. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals found that an anti-graffiti ordinance was enforced against pro-lifers, but not against Black Lives Matter activists. A lawsuit brought by Students for Life of America and the Frederick Douglass Foundation alleged that the D.C. government discriminated on the basis of viewpoint in the selective enforcement of its defacement ordinance. When two pro-lifers were arrested for writing Black Preborn Black Preborn Lives Matter on the sidewalk in front of Planned Parenthood in August 2020. But the appeals court found that D.C. officials all but abandoned enforcement of that same ordinance for protesters writing Black Lives Matter on public and private property after the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. To talk about the case, we have with us tonight Christy Hamrick, Vice President of Media and Policy for Students for Life. Welcome to the show, Christy. 
Thanks so much for having me and thanks for talking about this. I don't think people understand what a war zone it is out there. Last year on college campuses and, and Students for Life is on more than 1400 campuses in all 50 states, we saw free speech violations triple. That includes violence. And it, what's amazing about this particular story is we all saw Washington DC burn. We saw the violence. We saw the city of uh, Washington DC allow not only allow black preborn lives matter, black lives matter, I'm sorry, to be painted in permanent paint. Then they added equals to fund the police and it stayed up for months as there was terrible harassment, destruction of property. And yet two of our students got arrested with chalk in their hands. It's astounding. Take, take us back to that day three years ago. Tell us what happened. Sure. Well, as we saw um, at, at the time, we were involved in a Margaret Sanger campaign talking about the racism of Planned Parenthood. And in Washington, D.C., there's a very prominent uh, Planned Parenthood facility where many people pray every Saturday and where there was a lot of regular activism. We take our students there often and we have team members there, like I said, every Saturday. So as we saw that there was Black Lives Matter being painted, certainly all over Washington, D.C., but in other places in the country, uh, we didn't want to violate local laws. We're very careful at Students for Life to obey local laws. So we applied for a permit for an event in which we said we were going to be painting with temporary paint, not the permanent paint that Black Lives Matter uh, was done with. So we were told verbally we could use temporary paint that would wash away in the water and uh, we could have this event. We get there on that day. We also sent a letter to the mayor, to be clear. We get there on the day. There's tons of police. We're told we can no longer use temporary paint on the street. So chalk, that's a regular pro-life thing. There's there's National Chalk Day every year. I'm sure all of us have chalked and been part of pro-life chalking. Uh, frankly, my children chalk all the time when they were little. So it's not like it's a huge break in protocol to use chalk. So they some of the two of the students got out chalk to write Black Preborn Lives Matter and on a public sidewalk, so not blocking access to the entrance, uh, in a location where there are regular protests and where we had a permit and where we were told we could paint with temporary paint. And our two students were arrested. It was astounding. It's all on videotape. The Frederick Douglass Foundation partners with us, and you can see Reverend Dean Nelson on the video talking to the police as they try to arrest, uh, in particular, Warner DePriest, one of our students um, and staff now. Uh, and he's at that particular facility himself personally pretty much every Saturday. So it was an astounding breach of what we were told of the law and certainly of our experience at the facility. And when you consider the city was burning, it was absolutely viewpoint discrimination at work. Well, Christy, where did the idea come from to compare enforcement against these two group, the two groups? Uh, I think it was really instantaneous. Um, Alliance, um, Alliance ADF, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom works with us regularly and we do numerous lawsuits. We One of the things we say at Students for Life is if you're afraid to use your free speech rights, they don't exist. So we're very upfront with our students. If you're prevented from having an event, if someone hinders you in any way, we will defend you. And ADF has partnered with us on many cases. So it was really instantaneous. We had lawyers on the phone while the police were there. Uh, and it was all, it was really a same day thing. It was, it was early. It was we, to paint on a street, which we've done this in other locations. You have to come early. They don't want you to impede traffic. So it's like 4 a.m. and the police are there and the lawyers are on the phone. It was extremely hectic. 
Well, were you surprised that the court sided with pro-lifers? You know, um, I think I'm enough of an optimist that I'm not. I was surprised that the District of Columbia didn't just turn a blind eye to it and walk away. That would have been the bare minimum that they could have done. Um, I was surprised they sent police, you know, in light of what was happening and still continued to happen after our event. And the appeals court decision talked about that directly, that after our event, there was still violent, you know, vandalisms and violence taking place that they ignored. So I, I thought they probably would have tried to dodge a bullet and pretend, you know, they didn't see us, you know. But in fact, they decided to make a, a point. And I'm frankly glad they did, because we have to stand up against viewpoint discrimination. The um, Constitution does not allow government officials to pick and choose what they want to say or what they want to hear or not hear. And if the D.C. government allows paint on the city streets, it has to be open for everybody, not just people who Mariel Bowser particular happens to agree with. And she's the mayor of, of D.C. So we're kind of excited to see it go forward. I guess I had faith in the Constitution, but I guess what did surprise me was that the decision was 3-0. Uh, for court watchers like myself, um, the District of Columbia and that particular appeals court is very liberal. So I wouldn't have thought we could get 3-0. I was hoping for two. So that was a blessing. Awesome. So what happens next, Christy? Well, the district could decide to appeal it. They could ask for, rather than a three-judge panel, for the full panel to hear it, they could try to go straight to the Supreme Court. Uh, or, to be honest, the District of Columbia could try to settle. Um, if I was them, I would try to settle. Uh, from my perspective, if the case proceeds, what would be exciting about that is we could subpoena all the records from the mayor's office in terms of whether she did act you know, personally, or what she said, as she said, block pro-life speech, but not Black Lives Matter speech. That would be, I think, a very chilling thing for all of us to see. Uh, I think it's very interesting to me at this particular moment in time that a gentleman praying, just praying quietly in front of an abortion vendor office uh, in England can be arrested for quiet prayer. We take that seriously. We take seriously what we see in Canada, where free speech has really been under assault. So we're going to have to fight cases like this because that's the legal environment worldwide. And we don't want to see it come here to America. Um, but I do think it's a fight that we have on our hands. Well, under the Biden administration, good news for pro-lifers is hard to come by. So well done in bringing <laughs> the justice to light. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm sure the prayers of your viewers really helped. And I hope you keep praying because this case isn't over. It's just it's not over. And that's like the big news. They didn't stop us today. So that's right. great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And I hope we, we hope you'll come back to let us know how, how the case is going. I hope I come back with more good news. Unlike the Black Lives Matter protesters, the two pro-life advocates who were arrested did not cause any damage to public property. It was their viewpoint that was deemed politically unacceptable, Nelson said. Viewpoint discrimination is a violation of the First Amendment, and we are thankful the U.S. Court of Appeals agreed with us. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. If you like our show, please support us by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating God's people to end abortion. For all your pro-life news updates during the week, please follow us on Twitter at ProLife News Show. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager.
I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.